Shalom and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Kawaz, Communications Director. So we're just in the aftermath of the Peace to Prosperity workshop in Manama, Bahrain, and we want to discuss that. So we're lucky to be joined by Joel Bronald. Joel is the uh, Executive Director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace, which is a group of over 110 leading NGOs that are working to foster reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians and between Arabs and Jews uh, in the Middle East, in particular in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Um, Joel, thank you so much for, for joining. Thanks, Ali, for having me. Um, so we just had a, a conference uh, wrap-up in Bahrain, the workshop. You uh, tweeted a very interesting thread that kind of went, went viral. But what are your main takeaways from, from what happened uh, in Bahrain? It is impossible to analyze an economic proposal within the context of a political conflict without understanding what political framework it sits within. When a conflict is about borders, natural resources, land, to analyze the potential of an economic proposal of the magnitude that Kushner is proposing, $50 billion that takes that applies to every aspect of the Palestinian economy, it's impossible to analyze it. And I, I think that the best way to sum up Bahrain was that when Mr. Kushner at the end of the conference was asked about how does this fit into a political process, he said that the people who wrote the economic side have never seen the political part of this plan. And it just showed the absolute absurdity of wasting two days in Bahrain. You know, there were lots of good things that came out of Bahrain. There was the wonderful uh, interview that Barack Ravid did with the foreign minister of Bahrain, where he recognized that Jews have a historic place in the Middle East. Uh, there was that lovely clip of the minyan uh, of, uh, going on in the Bahrain synagogue. And those were wonderful things. But in terms of advancing the ball on Israeli-Palestinian peace, like, it was, it was an embarrassment. It was, it was I, I honest to God, don't know what that conference was. But in the end of the day, as I put in the tweet stream, the proposal itself was bizarre. Here you have 94 pages, a $50 billion proposal of around 170 projects, most of which have been proposed before. Um, it was marketed using images of the programs that have been cut off. So we saw different people-to-people programs like the Parent Circle and the Near East Foundation. Their marketing material was put as marketing material for this brochure. You saw UNRWA school kids. You saw USAID projects as images, all of which have been cut off, um, put into this glossy brochure. And it's the kitchen sink. You know, they've got everything from 80 million for artist grants to $5 billion for a connection between the West Bank and Gaza. Everything in the kitchen sink, no discernment. And more than that, and this is the sort of way that I concluded my, um, my, my tweets, there's no legal way that the U.S. government can fund any of this anyway. So ultimately what the entire Bahrain conference was, was a literature review of every economic project that's ever been proposed and a tin cup to beg for money. And at the same time that Bahrain was going on, you know, UNRWA had its pledging conference and they raised $113 million. And I would be shocked if even a dollar uh, will come into Mr. Kushner's economic plan. 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, pretty astonishing to see, especially as the administration spent the first year and a half, as you said, dismantling USAID's work, also uh, defunding uh, UNRWA, and suggesting a lot of things that are very similar to what were in place beforehand, stopping to fund uh, hospitals uh, in East Jerusalem, all these things that really damaged uh, the Palestinians economically. Um, and then having this conference where you had no real Palestinian presence there, I think besides, uh, I think we have one businessman who's a close friend with Trump. But I mean, besides that, the goal was to, to kind of have the Palestinians there. And no one really entertained that idea. And as a result, uh, no Israelis were, were invited. What, what do you make about that? I mean, the fact that you have this conference talking about all this aid for the Palestinians... Uh, economically, and and the Palestinians don't don't even show up. Like it's a demonstration of the failure of the Trump administration's approach to this conflict. Look, John Kerry at the you know when he attempted it was putting together a four billion dollar proposal, and everyone was in the room: the Palestinian business community, the PA, and it fell apart because of the politics just didn't work right. And so Kushner sort of decides to go for like more than ten times that but with no input from the Palestinians. You know, $500 million for a new Palestinian university. I don't know anyone uh, in Palestine who's been mooting a university at that level. $100 million for international visiting scholars to help in the university. You know, that's a great idea. What also was a good idea was allowing Al-Quds Bard to continue going, which was basically that. Um, it, it's part of an approach that the Trump administration believed that if they withheld all support after the Palestinian Authority boycotted the Trump administration after the uh, Jerusalem announcement, you know, that they could force the populations to side against the PA. And it looks like the reverse happened. You know, you know, we've had a famously fractured, you know, Palestinian polity and everyone, you know, has united, it seems, or the vast majority behind the leadership's decision to boycott the Trump administration. And so if they were looking to weaken Abbas, the reverse has happened. And you've now got an emboldened Palestinian authority that's got the support of their people. Um, I think out of this entire prospectus, my favorite quote, uh, not prospectus, but of this entire situation, apparently according to the UK uh, newspaper, The Telegraph, Kahil Shakaki, the famous Palestinian pollster, polled the plan for the peace team and showed them the statistics that they had basically no support. And apparently the peace team said, well, polls have been wrong before, and uh, and we think the polls are wrong. So he's like, okay, but this is what all the data shows, and it, it's a very clear trend. And so in the end of the day, they said, well, if, if the people don't agree in the end of the day, they're going to be stuck in the same situation that they are today, and we'll walk away. So like the Trump administration's position was, we're going to ignore reality. And if reality doesn't bend to our will, well, then they're wrong and we're right. And that's the sum total of the Trump administration's um, peace plan today. And it's a tragedy, right? Because it didn't have to be this way. And it's just the ideological members of the peace team seem to have won out. And their aim is to force a Palestinian no, and to, to say the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But in this case in Bahrain, this wasn't an opportunity. This was a mirage. And I think it's very important that we recognize that the blame doesn't lie at the fault of people not believing in a mirage because it's just not real. Yeah. And uh, to your point on uh, on Abbas's popularity, I think in all like Khalil Shakaki's polls, 
his popularity was really at an all-time low uh, about a, a year ago, and slowly as uh, he kind of uh, amassed this uh, Palestinian-like coalition against the Trump, uh, what the Trump administration was trying to do, his popularity just kind of, I think it's at the highest it's been in, in quite a while. So um, <laughs> quite the, the reverse effect. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, other Arab countries that participated in the conference because, I mean, there was a lot of talk that the big victory for the administration was being able to get countries such as Jordan uh, and Egypt uh, to to participate, Um, and they did, but at the same time, they sent, I would say, like fairly like low-level diplomats. There were no real uh, heads of states from, 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 from most of those countries. What does that say about, uh, about, about this conference? You know, when the Trump administration couldn't get official Israelis to come, as an Israeli official done, and it, it was nice that the Israeli media was attending, but there was no, no one, no ministers, you know, Sakhi Negbi wasn't there, Moshe Kachlon wasn't there, Netanyahu wasn't there. That was the success of Abbas, leveraging Egypt and Jordan's acceptance of going to make sure that there would be no Israelis there. So the aim was to try and build an anti-Iran coalition or it was supposed to uh, herald a new form of normalization between Israel and the Arab world. It didn't happen. You know, what does it mean that they attended? What did any of it mean that it attended? From the live parts of it that we could see, it just looked like a TED talk, right? Lots of TED talks and people talking around. There were no pledges. It was just a series of presentations. Like, again, like, what is this? What was it? What did people spend two days in Bahrain doing? I honestly don't know. Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, (laughs) I I, I think I I completely agree. And um, I mean, my personal opinion is that this is the U.S. already announced uh, this conference before these new Israeli elections were announced. They knew they kind of had to go ahead with it, but they're kind of, I think, re- this is the beginning of retracting from what has been like an utter disaster in terms of an approach uh, to to make progress on an issue where they've clearly done done damage. But don't, don't forget, right, but it, the, the level of the failure has to be looked at by the level of the effort. You know, I was on record, I, I was speaking at a U.S., IP, United States Institute for Peace conference uh, at the start of the Trump administration. We had, we had partnered with the Embassy of Ireland and USIP to look at comparisons between Northern Ireland and Israel Palestine and uh, a few other things. And I was on record. You can see it online. Like I, I came out and said that the Trump administration has more political capital to solve this conflict than anyone since the first Bush administration. And, you know, if you look at the effort they put in, you know, Trump put his son-in-law in the portfolio. He put an ambassador in place very quickly. Uh, he actually, in year one, actually upped the aid to the Palestinians. His first trip was to Israel, the Palestinians. You know, he went to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Riyadh. You know, that was crazy. He embarrassed Bibi in that first press conference around settlements. And then it, it unraveled, right? And it unraveled after the ideologues and the peace team basically said we're going to force the Palestinians to a position that they say no so that Bibi is never put into a position to say no to President Trump. Uh, of course. I mean, David Friedman's right? role and also David Friedman being backed up by by uh, Kushner and uh, obviously Greenblatt with comments about uh, in support of uh, 
Israeli annexation to some degree and uh, distancing themselves from the two-state framework, anything to do with that. It's clear that the ideologues took took the lead on what started off as something that had potential. Yeah. Potential, that had potential, whether you had like promise or not. So like the failure of Bahrain, you could only see the magnitude when you look at the potentiality at the beginning. And the fact that this is one of the only things that from the campaign, Trump actually wanted to do, right? He spoke about his want to, to try and form an ultimate deal. It's something that he personally seems to be quite passionate about. And after two and a bit years of intense staff work, right? And this promise, we had two days in Bahrain that I don't think anyone can classify as either thing, but like the weirdest thing they've ever seen. Like, it, it's really strange, right? And I, I, I'm mystified and really quite upset because it's, you know, the people suffer from these consequences. It, you know, the lack of a horizon, the now complete removal of the U.S. as any potential lone moderator has completely disappeared. And so if the U.S. does get back in, it will be with other people, which might be good in the end of the day. But the ability for the U.S. to, to play a productive role it's just, it's again, this sort of tragedy of the Trumpization of U.S. foreign policy. And it's just, you see these foreign policy professionals, State Department professionals, USAID staff, and then, of course, the grantees who are suffering immensely after the U.S., who has been one of the largest funders uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, just completely exiting the field and uh, completely against congressional will, by the way. And so, you know, Bahrain was a tragedy in many ways because... It just showed the complete inability for the Trump team to do anything except for continue an ideological aim to collapse the Palestinian national courts. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. But on, on a brighter note, we had a bill that was proposed at the beginning of this month, uh, the Partnership Fund for Peace, uh, a piece of legislation which... It just seems like almost the exact opposite of everything the administration has been uh, trying to do. Uh, the bill would provide, I think it was $50 million annually for, for five years. Um, and it also uh, at least mentions uh, the importance of preserving the possibility of a future two-state solution, uh, building a viable Palestinian economy. And what's important is that this was a bill that was backed uh, by both sides of the aisle, uh, Lindsey Graham someone who is close to BB, close to Trump, was one, one of the backers. And also in terms of uh, Jewish and Israel uh, organizational uh, lens, not many bills you see that are backed by J Street and APAC at the same time. And obviously, uh, uh, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, ALMEP, were very involved in that. Uh, what does that mean uh, for uh, U.S. involvement in, in the Israeli-Palestinian arena? So Congress has always played a real oversized role when it comes to Israel-Palestine, from the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 to the multiple different conditionalities of aid to how Palestinian assent to the UN will affect uh, the legal obligations of the US to the UN. Congress has played a very large role uh, on this conflict. And for the past decade, OMEP has been pushing for you know, an international fund for Israeli-Palestinian peace. And the latest iteration, and we partnered with a venture capitalist, a guy called Yadin Kaufman, who had been looking to create a BIRD foundation for the Palestinians. Uh, BIRD was a bilateral research and industrial development foundation that helped 
is our high-tech economy boom. Um, and we partnered together on this partnership fund, which, as you said, is a, is a fund that looks to fund both uh, peace and reconciliation, peace-building work, as well as joint economic work uh, to the tune of $50 million a year from the U.S., uh, with the aim of collecting multilateral contributions from Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere um, as you know, a foundational approach to ensure the next generation doesn't hate each other. Uh, the U.S. is an essential player. There's the USA dollars are trusted in Israel, much the same how EU euros are trusted amongst the Palestinians. And finding a way for the U.S. to play a role productively about laying the foundations is essential. And what's interesting is when you look at what type of legislation Congress traditionally passes, it's military aid for Israel and sort of punishment for the Palestinians. The last time there was a positive piece of legislation that actually benefited Israelis and Palestinians, from my knowledge, was the qualified industrial zones in 1993, uh, which was sort of free trade stuff. Um, and that worked extremely hard uh, bringing people together. And the bill is sponsored in the House by Chairwoman Nita Lowy, the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, who sits on that committee, uh, who's for, uh, a Republican from Lincoln, Nebraska, and the Senate by Senator Coons, Graham, Kane, and Gardner. Very unusual to have these folks all in the same bill introducing, as you mentioned, having a wide array of support from Americans for Peace Now, NIF, J Street, uh, to Jewish Federations of North America, APAC, IPF, um, and others all on the bill. I think that it's a desire to demonstrate that there is a productive role that Congress can play and that the center ground of this in Congress should be about how do we invest in the next generation. Because we can, we can pressure one party or the other, we can do whatever we want, but if we don't offer the next generation something that rehumanizes the populations, we won't move this ball forward. The youth amongst Israel and the youth amongst the Palestinians are the least optimistic, the most fearful, the most trust, the most fearful, mistrustful, and have uh, the worst opinions of each other. They have no knowledge of each other. And trying to find ways to break down these barriers by making sure that people who have programming don't lack resources to achieve their ambitions is essential. And I think that that's what this bill represents and has an opportunity for passage. Um, so at the same time, when you know Bahrain's going on and we've got a $50 billion mirage, I think Congress is demonstrating that within the context of preserving a two-state solution with a political horizon, it is possible you know, to do work on a people-to-people -people level and to try and encourage to link the Palestinian economy to the wider business economy uh, and to Israel as well. And I think that's very important. Um, I'd like to leave it there on such a bright note, but I want to bring us back to the to the dark days ahead how do you see uh how, how do you see this playing out after uh after bahrain um do you see the u.s i mean this is just more a speculative uh a question but do you see uh kushner and company uh going forward with with something else or do you see them kind of backing off as i mean the presidential campaign the 2020 is kind of already underway with democratic debates so and so and obviously is israeli elections uh coming up how do you see it playing out after bahrain you know uh, it, the kushner team promises that the political side of this ideally will be released in november you know it all depends what's in there right as a foreshadowing when we look at the economic side we're looking at a regional bank or whatever function this is going to work with a board of directors who will control every single part of the Palestinian economy, every single part from arts all the way to like transportation and like natural gas. 
that doesn't to me seem compatible with the concept of statehood. Um, so if it's foreshadowing, it'll be interesting to see what's in the political side of it. Though for the Palestinians, it's irrelevant because they're going to say no. But if the US does manage to produce something, I can't imagine it's going to be something that upsets Trump's evangelical base. Because why would he introduce when the 2020 elections getting kicked off something that would upset his base that cares deeply uh, about um, not creating a Palestinian state? So uh, if, if the plan is released, it's probably an indication that it's terrible, uh, at least for the cause if you believe in a two-state solution. Um, so if we listen to the Trump team by their word, post the Israeli election, uh, and there's a government form, they should look at the political plan. Um, but I, I think the aim is that they're going to try and lay down some markers that completely tear up where the international consensus is. Um, so... But the question will be relevancy, and I think this is an interesting place to leave off. At the end of the Obama administration, you know, when Obama didn't veto the UN resolution on settlements, the reason that it has a lasting impact is because the international community came to a consensus. The Trump administration, not just in Israel-Palestine, but everywhere, has managed to disrupt so many of the traditional allies that where will consensus be? Let's assume that the Trump administration drops their plan and it's one that basically calls for most of annexation, some sort of autonomy, but nowhere close to the traditional sort of contours of the two-state solution. And let's assume that the Netanyahu government or the Israeli government, whoever it is, accepts it, but no one else does. What impact does that have as a lasting anything? It might have some cadence with Republicans, which goes further to the partisanization of pro-Israel politics within America, and it'll have some cadence in Israel, but it has no lasting effect internationally. And ultimately, it further distances Israel and America from everyone else and makes conflict resolution even further as we go further away from any agreement about what our final contours will look like. So that's why many analysts think that the releasing of a political plan will be terrible Mainly for us. Yeah, it also could enable, I mean, uh, annexation, the beginning of the annexation process. At least it could give uh, Israel a green light from the United States. And we, we know how detrimental that would be for uh, a future uh, two-state solution. Um, yeah, it's definitely a big concern. But even, but even if you're an opponent of the two-state solution, to lose any ability to have consensus with anyone except for one political party in the U.S. is not good. And it doesn't bode well. And it's not even, I don't even know if it's a political party. We see this, how Lindsey Graham and a bunch of Republicans are getting behind. It's it's an administration with a Middle East team that's run by, by ideologues. So, you know, I, I don't know hitching your wagon to, you know, if the Trump team gets, I, you know, I think that it's all about the risk analysis. Does the Trump team get a second term? Do they not? How do they leverage? But therefore, all of this indicates to me, you know, when push comes to shove, will they release the political plan or not? I don't know. I think it's up in the air. But if the people believe that by releasing it, it will have the same sort of effect as Obama choosing not to veto sort of UN Resolution 2334, I think they're sorely mistaken. Uh, and the consequences could be actually quite dire for the U.S. as a relationship if Israel insists on that being a starting point, because there is no consensus, as you mentioned, even in the Republican Party, let alone the Democratic Party. And I, I think that it will create more turbulent times ahead for a plan that won't go anywhere.
So I think all of that said, we're going to have to see what happens. But um, it's uh, it's rocky roads ahead. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, with that, uh, I think uh, we'll leave it. Uh, Joel, uh, thank you so much for your uh, for your expertise and for talking with us. Uh, Joel Bronnell, the executive director of Alliance for Middle East Peace. Uh, thank you. So we spoke about uh, Bahrain with with Joel, and now now we'll move on to Israeli. Uh, elections, as always, and it's, it's been a very eventful week. I mean, the campaign took this election campaign has kind of taken some time to to get interesting, and people are saying these elections are going to be boring. But we had a very interesting week, and I'm joined by our policy director Michael Koplow uh, to talk about uh, some of the uh, the events. How you lie? I don't know what you're talking Israeli about. Elections. Israeli elections are always interesting. Ah, okay. Well, you know, I mean. Being in Israel during the last campaign it was just, very, very exhausting. A, so you need uh, to, to to kind of to get me back involved. I need you know I need a new party here. I need a, a primary there, and I got it. I'm just saying. You I'm just saying. You you must have a very exciting life if you ever found these elections. Oh, uh, well, well, please. <laughs> last few weeks have been a bit, been exciting, but for the for, for the wrong reasons. Right. But I'll leave I'll I'll leave that out. So we we had. Uh, Ehud Barak, who you are very fond of, uh, we, ha- we had him, <laughs> the, the former chief of staff, the former prime minister, uh, uh, who defeated Netanyahu in 1999. Um, he, uh, people have been, he's been in the political arena commentating, I'd say, for, what has it been, three or four years now, or... Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, com- acting as a as a, as a Twitter yes, exactly. Um, and there was speculation about him joining, uh, jumping into politics in, in April elections, but that didn't happen. But yesterday, um, he announced that he was running. Uh, he didn't announce the name of a party, but he had a press conference with four pretty uh, prominent Israelis announcing. A, a, a new or kind of I don't know if this is going to be him bringing back his Atzmaut party, um, but right. I thought it was I thought it was strange that he didn't announce that right out of the gate, given that he he owns Atzmaut and it's already a, a four exactly. party. I mean, any 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 thoughts as to why? I think that he's going to run under the Atzmaut, uh, right? Like that is going to be the party, but I think they they may just change their their name. I think they weren't. The reason was they weren't sure that Atzmaut would be the name of the, so they didn't want to announce it. And I also I don't even know if they have, uh, I'm sure they're still having those conversations. Um, but it was a given. Given what led to the the formation of Atzmaut originally, uh, you know, I, I guess it's something of a damaged brand. Of course, and obviously their, their results uh, in the was it the 2013 elections? Yeah. Yeah. Where they didn't past the threshold and received I mean it was probably Ehud Barak's the most uh, embarrassing uh, moment uh, politically uh, uh, especially uh, after breaking off from labor to join uh, Netanyahu's government Um, but it's notable that at yesterday's press conference was a well we can uh, someone who was spoken a lot about as a, a future maybe leader of labor um, of the Israeli left, uh, Yair Golan, uh, former major general in the IDF, 
who was touted to be uh, chief of staff until uh, he made controversial remarks comparing uh, aspects of what was going on in Israel, uh, trends in Israel to trends in Europe uh, in the 30s, and that kind of put him out of running for, for chief of staff. But uh, uh, people were talking about him maybe joining labor, labor. I think it's kind of interesting that he, he went with Ehud Barak. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And what's interesting about this new group, Barak and, and Yair Golan, they they don't speak at all the same way that Kachol Avan speaks. They sound like people who are left of center and are and are proud to have that label. And frankly, they don't sound different from people like Itzik Shmuli or Stav Shafir in terms of their tone and their politics. I think that you know Yair Golan probably views labor, given the results of the last election and the Avi Gabai disaster. He probably views labor as a damaged brand. And if he's going to enter politics, I guess he didn't want to have to um, scrape to scrape to be one or two on the labor list, given given where labor is. Right. We're not talking about a party that just won 25 seats. We're talking about a party that just won six. So in his mind, it may make more sense to go with Ehud Barak and Kobe Richter, you know, big people, people who have well-known names within Israeli politics. But it's definitely notable that. You have Barack and Golan. So again, we have two more, uh, two more highly decorated uh, major major generals. Um, exactly, um, and you'll have a labor and, party uh, head who is definitely not a a military uh, military person. Right, um, but you know, again, you you have another group of, of generals, just like Aholavan. That these guys, these generals, sound very different, and I th- I think they're going to remain um, sounding a very different tone. Over the course of the I think yeah, I think their tone is what the traditional the labor voters that left to vote for Kaholavan. I think the tone of the Sehud Barak party is exactly what they wanted to hear from Kaholavan and that they didn't get in the past. Right, and so and so that's that's where we start to to get into the the nitty gritty of this. And Kaholavan in the last election, there's really no evidence that they pulled any votes at all from the right. Basically, what they did was, you know, Kachalavan took all the Eshatid votes and they cannibalized a whole bunch of, of labor votes. And so they got to this 35 seat margin. But they didn't really pull anything from the right wing bloc. And I don't really see Ehud Barak and Yair Golan and, and Kobe Richter and Yifad Biton and whoever else ends up being in this party. I don't see them doing any better in that sense of pulling folks from the right. So it's not clear to me that this is going to add to the the non-right-wing block. I think it may end up just reapportioning votes uh, among that block, but I don't know that it's going to, that it's going to add to it. Um, and so, you know, if the idea is to, I, I guess there are two possibilities here that I can think of. One possibility is that Barack and Golan and company recognize that Kachol Avan is not actually uh, a left-of-center party. They're actually a right-of-center party who would be more than happy to form a government with Likud if Netanyahu wasn't there. And so perhaps this is an effort to reclaim reclaim left-wing votes for, for a party that's actually going to be left-of-center. Um, or perhaps they actually think that they, that they somehow uh, will be able to pull 
Kachol Lavan away from the right and shift the Kachol Lavan preference away from a broad right-wing government with Likud toward parties farther to the left, like Labor and, and Meretz and whatever this new party ends up calling itself. I'm not sure, but um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Eli, if you think that Barack and Golan have a chance of actually adding to this block, or if it's just going to be a matter of reapportioning votes. I, I think they have the potential to add. Um, I would add, you mentioned briefly Yifat Shasha Biton. Um, I think she is more important than people. I mean, she's kind of hasn't been getting that much attention uh, from yesterday with Ehud Barak and Yair Golan kind of stealing the headlines. Um, she was a very popular MK with Kulanu. Um, Moshe Kahlon's party, obviously, that has merged with the Likud. Uh, she's from Kiryat Shmona, uh, a city in like in the Israeli north, uh, which votes heavily uh, Likud. And with those votes of uh, those Kulanu votes kind votes, of votes, 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 votes heavily votes heavily with after, Likud even after uh, uh, Bibi goes up there and, and exactly them. exactly <laughs> yeah um, but yeah I think that her uh, joining this this new party uh, helps helps with the votes that Kulanu received about one hundred and forty thousand votes in the previous elections I don't think those are all going to Likud I think they're being dispersed um, so it might help with a few. Uh, Votes there, um, but I, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, we still we saw one interesting poll yesterday. Uh, I mean, it's obviously super super early. If we looked at uh, polls at the similar stage of previous elections, I think you'd have Orly Levy with like eight seats. Um, so right. uh, not too much or, to or fo- Moshe or Moshe Moshe Feiglin. I think that was even before yeah. Feig. If working this, it was before Feiglin's jump. But yeah, we just have all all always changing but the, the first polls we've seen in this election have showed pre- a pretty solid uh, uh, right-wing coalition uh, even uh, and kind of Kaholavan dropping a few seats and the poll after Ehud Barak announced his party and this is a poll conducted by Professor Camille Fuchs who who's uh, his uh, predictions friend, friend, friend of the pod and also his predictions on election day um, were the closest to the accurate. Uh, his exit polls were the closest by far uh, out of all the other main channels. So I think I look at his polls with, uh, especially now with more credibility. They had uh, the the center left and Arab parties at sixty one. The right wing uh, ultra orthodox parties at fifty two. And Israel Betenu who is now always on their own at polls because of uh, how these elections occurred at seven seats. And we had Barack's party getting six seats, um, Labor at five uh, before their primaries, obviously, which will change things. But it, it was interesting just to see how that Barack really has like some... Obviously, there's excitement about like people that support him, uh, but he, he has like a... It's a base in a sense of it looks like he has a base. We'll have to see how polls continue. But this, I think, this poll is definitely should uh, give that that argument that this has the potential to help the center left block. It, it must give it a little bit of of weight. Um, again, super early, but I think that was a, it. Must be an encouraging sign uh, for Ehud Barak and for people that want a center left 
Israeli uh, victory or at least a better result in the next elections. Right. Uh, you know, and I guess we just should mention the the flip side of that. And this is where I tend to land with Barack, which is, you know, as as impressive as Ehud Barak is in all respects. And uh, I think there's a case to be made that, that he is the most impressive Israeli uh, in history, given everything he's done and, um, you know, his, his accomplishments in uh, just uh, numerous, numerous fields, um, you know, whether it's the military or politics or the fact that, uh, you know, he's a, he's a concert level pianist. Um, he's also massively controversial and very unpopular in in some quarters and you know in in some ways he is one of the least trusted public figures in all of israel and i think that there certainly is a possibility and you know again let's harken back to his most recent political history i think there's certainly a possibility that he ends up turning off more people than he motivates um so I know what these first polls say. Uh, obviously, it's a long campaign, but you know I, I tend to be wary of, of Barack because the place where he is the most distrusted and the most reviled is on the left, given his history with Labour and with Netanyahu. And uh, these are the votes that he needs to to motivate and turn out. He's not he's not aiming for right wing votes. Um, you know, he's he's aiming for left wing votes, and that's the demographic where he has the most trouble. So. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we're uh, of course we're you know we're we're months out here, um, and there's a lot of a lot of stuff to play out. But I always find it difficult to view Ehud Barak as, as some sort of political savior, given his history and given the strong types of feelings that he that he engenders. Yeah, no, I I I agree with that. Um, but we'll have to see. That's a good transition into uh, the today. There were primaries, uh, leadership primaries. Uh, with Meretz, and actually Meretz have elected a new leader, uh, Nitzan Horowitz, uh, who was a Meretz MK in the past. He's a very well-respected uh, journalist in Israel. And that uh, cuts, I mean, that leaves Tamar Zandberg uh, was only party head for just about a year and three months, I believe. So disappointing for her. Um, but what this does make more likely is a uh, whether it's a block or a, a unity agreement of parties on the Israeli left. Um, I think that these results, especially with Ehud Barak's party joining the fray, I think there is a good likelihood that we will see some sort of alignment uh, in on the Israeli left. Uh, Nitzan Horowitz throughout the campaign talked about uh, joining labor. Obviously, this is still dependent on who the next leader of labor is. Uh, but I think uh, you could see a situation where you have uh, Kaholavan and then you have uh, a three uh, parties on the Israeli left joining together to create something which could carry a significant electoral. Right. And, and again, there, the question, uh, agree with everything you said. Um, but again, there, the question will be whether this ends up just reshuffling votes among parties in the same block or if it adds to that block. Um, and, you know, what effect that will have on Kahol Lavan decision making and unity and, and what have you. Um, also worth noting that um, 
I believe this is the first time that there is an LGBTQ party head in Israel. I, I believe you're right. And there could be a second should Itzik Shmuley win right. the labor primaries. Right. Um, and that right. would be, um, and uh, the, the the and I would say the um, the, the downside uh, is that uh, in replacing Zonberg, there is now no longer uh, any party in the Knesset that has a woman at its head. Uh, of course, if Staff Shafir wins the Labor primary, then uh, that will change. Or if change. your favorite selfie uh, buddy Ayala Chaked is appointed the head of the United Right Wing Parties, of course. That's right. That's, that's right. True. That that is true. Uh, in which case, the the selfie that I took with Ayala Chaked a few nights before the last election um, will be will be more exciting. <laughs> uh, exactly, and also, um, I mean, before we we wrap up, I mean, uh, an interesting development on the Israeli right, which could hurt. Uh, this united right-wing party block that I just mentioned is the far right-wing Kahanist faction has cut off from uh, the Jewish power, Jewish strength party, have cut off from the united right-wing party list. And that puts uh, that party kind of on the cusp of the of the threshold. Um, they were only a few 10,000 votes above the threshold in the previous elections. And so that will be something interesting to follow. Netanyahu, obviously, very dependent on uh, making sure all those smaller right-wing parties either unite or at least reach the 3.25% uh, threshold. Um, and I think the, what we've seen happen in this last week has really been of concern for Netanyahu. And we saw all sorts of efforts uh, kind of beginning to try to cancel these elections uh, in a way? I know, Michael, what are your thoughts on... Yeah, the, 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 whole, um, the whole elections being canceled, uh, I think, has, has just been a, a red herring. There's, there's no way that that was actually going to happen. Uh, I think that you know, Netanyahu wanted a trial balloon floated out there just to gauge how outraged people would be, and, and there was lots of outrage uh, not just not just on the left and among the opposition, um, but among folks on the right too. So, you know, I, I, these elections are going to happen. Um, I, I don't see any real way in which they can be canceled. On you know the issue on the far right, you know, I, I think that you're correct. Netanyahu needs to have all of these parties make the threshold. Um, you know, there were there were tens of thousands of wasted votes on the right uh, last time because Zehut and Moshe Feiglin did not make the threshold. And uh, Haimina Khadash under Natali Bennett and Ayala Chaket also missed the threshold. He can't afford to have that happen again, particularly now that Lieberman can't be counted on with his seats. So, you know, I think that he's either going to try and do everything he can to make sure that Baid Yehudi ends up merging with whatever Chaket and Bennett or, you know, either both or one of them, whatever vehicle they, they end up using. Uh, or I think he's going to try and, and force the uh, Bayad Yehudi, Otsma Yehudi merger to, to be back on. Um, at the moment, though, you know, it is heartening to know that uh, the Kahanists uh, have no chance of, of making the Knesset on their own. So I'm very happy to, to see that uh, they have they've had a nasty, nasty split up with uh, with Bayad Yehudi. Um, there are also reports, of course, that uh, there's a lot of nastiness going on between Bayad Yehudi and Rafi Peretz. And Kuma under Batalos Motrich. And, you know, from my perspective, 
if there was a way to keep uh, not only Otsma Yehudit and all those Kahanists out, but Batsalas Motrich and Kuma out as well, that would be lovely. Uh, and there would be something fitting about having Smotrich and the Kahanists have to run together on their own. But, um, you know, again, there, there are months to go. So I think there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, jockeying for position still for to be sure. had. Uh, and so with that, I'll just ask you one. I mean, I love talking predictions with you, uh, Michael. <laughs> um, so uh, we have labor primaries next week. Uh, who's your, who are your shekels on? I mean, we, we've seen, and I don't know what it is to say about polls in primaries in a party with uh, 65 or so thousand members, um, but the polls have shown that the race is really between uh, Itzik Shmuli and Amir Peretz, with Amir Peretz leading in most polls and Stav Shafir trailing by about 10 to 15 percentage points. Um, right. So, uh, as as you well know, <laughs> I adore Stav Shafir. You um, enjoy or you endorse? I, I adore. Oh, I thought I heard uh, an endorsement. I, I was like, I, Michael, yeah, please. I said, I said adore. Um, it's probably probably not probably not appropriate uh, or even warranted uh, for for me to be endorsing anybody. Um, I do adore Stav Shafir um, and have uh, have have for years. Uh, every time I see her. Uh, sort of as a running joke, tell her that she should be running uh, for head of labor. But I think that, um, unfortunately, she's unlikely unlikely to win, although um, I would love to be wrong in that prediction. Um, my, my, my money would be on Itzik Shmuley. Um, I, know that, I know that Amir Peretz is ahead in some of the polls, but I think that Itzik Shmuley, aside from the fact that he has done better than Amir Peretz in recent labor primaries, I think that the types of labor voters who are motivated now to come out and really put the Avi Gabai era behind them are probably more likely to vote for Itzik Shmuley than for Amir Peretz. But um, I certainly don't have a high confidence level in, in this prediction, so yeah, we'll see. Yeah, and it's also an interesting situation because uh, it seems like the votes that are going to Shmuley and Shafir, uh, if one were to pull out, the remaining votes would likely go to, to, to the other. So uh, if Stav was to endorse Shmuley, that would be a huge boost for him. Um, I mean, that... And, and, there's, also, and, and there's, also, there's also the possibility of a Exactly, run, exactly. I think that's if no candidate so, gets 40% of the vote. Right. And so, right. And so I think, you know, in that scenario, assuming there's a runoff and Shmuley and Peretz uh, are the last two standing, you know, in that case, I, I, my, I would, I would uh, up my confidence in my prediction that Itzik Shmuley ends up on top. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see what happens. Okay, with that, uh, we'll wrap up this episode. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you, Eli. Always a pleasure. <laughs>